Picture a fire in a home fireplace. A fire in a fireplace is a delight. We love the warmth it provides on a cold winter's night. We love the light it provides as the flames dance in the dark. We love the noise of crackling wood and the aroma of pine. A fire in a fireplace brings joy and life to a home. But what happens if that fire spills out of the fireplace and into the living room? What happens if a fire starts in another part of the house altogether, rather than in the safe confines of the hearth? What happens? Disaster. The house burns down. People's lives are endangered. There's no joy to be found here. No life. Only sadness and destruction. If you picture a fire in a home fireplace, you have a very good illustration for how the Bible teaches us about sex and marriage. Sex within marriage is safe and life-enhancing. It brings considerable pleasure. Sex outside of marriage can be damaging to all involved. Tonight in our series in Proverbs, we have reached the final two talks from two loving parents to their son. Remember, they're trying to pass on to him the best advice that they can before he ventures out into the big wide world for the first time. They're trying to pass on the benefits of their experience, hoping that he's going to avoid making similar mistakes. And instead, he will live life to the full. And these last two talks are both on various forms of sexual temptation that eventually lead to adultery or sex outside of marriage. The first talk in chapter 6 focuses particularly on the dangers of lust. The second in chapter 7 focuses on more short-term sexual recreation, if you like. The physicality of intimacy outside of a committed relationship. And the message of both talks is clear. Like a fire lit outside of a fireplace, falling for either of these temptations is going to lead to trouble. Sex outside of God's ordained covenant of marriage ends up damaging those involved. And as ever with Proverbs, the writing here is brisk and it is blunt. We are left in no doubt as to what this teaching means. But despite these chapters being easy to understand, there are two important notes that I would like to make before we go any further. First of all, cases of adultery are not always the woman's fault. That should be obvious to us all. But sadly, that is the conclusion that some people have mistakenly drawn from reading these chapters, which include the wiles of a wayward woman. When we read Proverbs, we need to remember that originally this was written as guidance to young men. And naturally, young men are going to go out into the world and be tempted by beautiful women. But if Proverbs was being written today, you would surely also include instructions To women, there are plenty of men who dress up in fine clothes and splash on the aftershave in the attempt to snare a young woman at a pub or club on a Friday night. And we have to notice that amongst all the descriptions of the woman's flirting in this passage, there is an explicit criticism of the young men 
who fall for it. In Proverbs, men are not helpless victims unable to resist female wiles. They are foolish for falling for it. And in truth, in Proverbs, young men are held to account just as much as the wayward woman providing the temptation. So what I'm trying to say is that men should not read Proverbs 6 and 7 and allow these chapters to become a condemnation of all women in general. And equally, young women should read this passage and know that the dangers of sexual temptation are just as big a threat to them as they are to young men. The second note I'd like to make before we go any further is that sexual sin can always be forgiven. I am sure you're aware from your own experience that churches always seem to be banging on about sexual sin. It's as if we're fixated by it at times, ignoring the many other forms of sin that are just as bad. Now, I don't know why that is. Perhaps it's because many of us as Christians have fallen for this type of temptation ourselves, and we figure somehow that attack is the best form of defence. I don't know. But whatever the case, I want to make it plain right at the beginning that no matter what mistakes we have made in the past, they can be fully forgiven if we turn to Jesus. And earlier in this service, we heard the beautiful words of John 8. And in that passage, Jesus freely forgave the woman caught in adultery. Unlike the religious leaders of the time, he refused to condemn her. And in this passage, we encountered the miracle of grace that is the gospel. We saw the power of the cross to make even the foulest clean in the eyes of God. So if these chapters do remind us of misdemeanors from our past, let us remember that God's forgiveness is offered to us all. All we must do is believe in Jesus and actively choose to follow him. And of course, part of the act of following him is repentance, the choosing not to carry on in the ways that we were and to turn a new leaf. But if we do that, God sees us again as his pure, beloved children. So with those two important notes in place, let's delve into the passage. As a church, we recently had a sermon on the dangers of adultery when we read Proverbs 5 together. If you missed it, that sermon is online. You can go and listen to it. And we noted then how the strongest argument in the Bible against adultery is actually that sex inside of marriage is a truly wonderful, precious thing. Sex in its proper place is so good, so special it's always worth saying no to sex in any other context. So because we've already covered all of that, I'm not going to talk about adultery at length this evening. Some of you might be relieved about that. Instead, I want to do something else. I want to use these two chapters to help us all to build up our defences against temptation. No matter how old we are, no matter how long we've been a Christian for, we are all tempted at times. And those temptations will be different for each and every one of us. But the reality is we all need help. 
And this is because if we are honest, we will admit that sometimes the power of temptation is very strong. So the question I want to ask tonight is this. What wise things can we put in place that will help us to overcome the various temptations that we face? And in answering that question, we will see how the wisdom that we find in the Bible can defend us in our most challenging moments. And I'm briefly going to cover five pieces of advice that I think we find in these chapters. The first piece of advice that I think we find is this. As believers, we are to bind God's word into our lives. This instruction is how both the talk started in verses 20 to 24 of chapter 6 and verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7. In those verses, we are told that the wisdom we find in God's word will protect us and guard us and guide us into good decisions and right living. In those verses, we are told that the wisdom we find in God's word will actively lead us away from danger and instead into fullness of life. God's word is like a lamp lighting our way, it says in verse 23 of chapter 6. And as I read those words, I I pictured the lamp of a lighthouse shining out across stormy waters. The light of God's word also helps to show up temptation for what it really is. Temptation is always a lie. Take, for example, the woman in chapter 7, who as part of her luring speech to the young man, explains that she has recently fulfilled her vows at the temple and she's offered her sacrifice to God. You can come in now. I've done it. Well, if you read God's word, it tells us that God hates empty worship. You cannot offer a sacrifice and then immediately go and break his rules. So if you read God's word, you will see that this woman is actually fairly morally bankrupt. She is full of hypocrisy. The temptation that she offers should be avoided. But how do we get God's word into our lives so it can start being this guide and defense for us? Well, it cannot be by just listening to a series on wisdom once in a while. It cannot just be from coming to church once a week. If God's word is really going to help us, we've got to internalize it. We must allow it to seep deep inside of us. In verse 3 of chapter 7, we are told that we are to allow God's word to be written on the tablet of our heart. From such deep places as that, it will begin to inform all of our actions. At the beginning of the passage in chapter 6, we read the parents urging their son to bind God's teaching around his neck. And some of you will know that Orthodox Jews still literally do this today. Jim showed us a picture of it this morning in the sermon. They tie God's word to their foreheads and their arms. I would suggest that the meaning to this imagery is that we're to be reading God's word regularly. We're to dwell on it and reflect on it and then begin to wear it in our actions. As believers, we're to be hungry for God's word, to to read it morning and noon and night, to read it when we get up and when we go to sleep, 
I love the imagery of verse 4 of chapter 7. We are to spend time with the wisdom of God's word in the same way we would spend time with a sister or a relative. We are to love God's word. We are to cherish God's word. Notice in verse 5 of chapter 7 how the parents warn their son that a wayward woman would try to seduce him with her words. We are to counter the words of temptation with a regular dose of the word of God. So we're not just to start reading the Bible when we're beginning to feel a bit tempted. We're to read the Bible in advance so that we are ready for the temptation whenever and wherever it appears. And as Christians, there really is no shortcut to this. We must regularly bind the word of God into our lives. The second piece of advice that I think this passage gives us is that we are to take heed of warnings. Emmy and I once went to Linda's farm, a truly beautiful and inspiring place. Linda's farm is an island at the end of a very long causeway. At low tide, there is a road that you can drive along to reach it. At high tide, the island is completely cut off. And it's from this island of Lindisfarne that Christianity spread throughout England in the 8th century. Now, when you go to Lindisfarne, as you can see from this picture, there are plenty of warnings about the tides. In fact, they're on huge posters on both sides of the causeway. You cannot miss them. Do not try and cross the causeway at certain times. You will get cut off. Well, guess what happened when Emily and I went to the island? <laughs> Some motorists decided to do exactly this. They couldn't be bothered to wait for the tide to go down. They obviously had some important business to attend to. So they set off along the causeway and out into the sea. Needless to say, they got stuck. And the next thing Emmy and I heard was the helicopter coming to rescue them. And I'm sure after the relief of the rescue, they got a firm telling off by the emergency services for ignoring the warnings. These two chapters are strong warnings. The parents are passing them on to their son, not because they want to spoil his fun, but because they deeply love him and want to protect him. And at times the warnings are very explicit. Verse 25 of chapter 6, for example, do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. Or the last verses of chapter 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or strain to her path. Many are the victims that she has brought down. Through scripture, these warnings are preserved and they are passed on to us. And it would be sheer foolishness to think that we know better than this. As stupid as the driver on the causeway. You know, at times as Christians, we need to listen to advice. We need to listen to the advice of spiritual parents who have gone before us, experienced life before us. If we are beyond the age of having our biological parents at hand, we're to make sure that we remain within the fellowship of the church and allow the elders within the community to guide us when we need it. As we venture out into the world, we will all need warnings at time, guidance. Whoa, are you sure you want to go there? 
whether they come through the voice of other believers, whether they come through the Bible, whether they come through the promptings of our conscience, we'd be foolish not to heed the warnings. So God's wisdom gives warning to us that we are to listen to. So we're to bind God's word into our lives, we're to heed the warnings. The third piece of advice that I think we get from these two chapters is that we should never compromise with a temptation. Adultery, rarely, if ever, happens as the consequence of a simple rush of blood to the head. Adultery requires a a certain set of preconditions. You need to be open to the possibility. You need to refuse to recognise the seriousness of the warnings that have been given to you. You need to deliberately step into an environment where it becomes a possibility. In chapter 7, the young man that is depicted is foolish because he compromises. Look at his behaviour in verses 6 to 9. He deliberately walks near the wayward woman's house. He goes there at night when the light is fading, knowing that he won't be seen. He's left the group of the other young men and headed out on his own. Clearly, this young man has put himself in a dangerous place. And once there, he then allows himself to listen to the woman's words. Now, this young man may initially have had no intention at all with going through the plan of committing adultery, but he has let his guard down. He has compromised certain boundaries. He has exposed himself to harm. And the teaching we are to take from this is relevant for all forms of temptation, whatever it is that we personally feel tempted by. If we are struggling with a temptation, we need to be honest and name it for what it is. We shouldn't ignore it or or pretend that it's not happening. And we should always be prepared to recognise our weakness, that we will need boundaries in place to protect us. That may include telling a trustworthy friend with the difficulties that you're going through at a certain time, asking them to pray for you or hold you accountable if that's appropriate. This is so important. We we cannot compromise. If our temptation is alcohol, don't go to the pub, even if you just intend to have a Coke. If the temptation is money, don't volunteer to become the treasurer of your social club. If the temptation is lying, don't allow yourself a little white lie, thinking it'll be okay, because you know many more will follow. When it comes to temptation, we have to be really careful not to compromise. The fourth piece of advice that this passage gives us is that when we're feeling tempted by something, we should take time to reflect on the consequences. What the consequences might be for falling for it. And we should recognise that consequences of sin are always both physical and spiritual. The vast majority of the warning given in these two chapters is made up of the consequences of giving in to adultery. But notice these consequences come at different levels. In chapter 6, the consequences of giving in to lust are all plain common sense. The teaching here is direct. It's down to earth. If we sleep with another person's spouse, 
we're going to end up receiving blows and disgrace and shame. We're going to end up making an enemy for ourselves in the spouse that we have wronged. The consequences here are physical, anger, upset, suffering, loss. It will come at some point, sooner or later. You're not going to get away with this. It will be found out. However, in chapter 7, the consequences are much deeper. Listen again to verses 22 to 23. Like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, like an arrow piercing a liver, like a bird darting into a snare. Ongoing adultery will eventually cost you your life. The wayward woman leads straight to the grave. Now these verses are not saying that sexual sin is unforgivable. I tried to make that clear earlier. What they are saying is that if you choose to keep giving in to temptation, eventually you will become comfortable with the sin in your life. And the more comfortable you become with sin in your life, the harder your heart gets. Because you keep ignoring the warnings. And slowly but surely, you will turn away from God. There is a spiritual consequence as well as a physical one for choosing to give in to temptation again and again and again and again without regret. Eventually we will cease going to the Lord for forgiveness. Eventually we will cease asking for help. And then we are in trouble. Without the God of life, the Bible says we are heading for death. So far then, we found four wise pieces of advice on how to defend ourselves from any kind of temptation. We are to bind the word of God into our lives. We're to heed the warnings that come our way. We're to try not to compromise with temptation. And we're to try and take time to reflect on the consequences of our actions. They will always be more serious than we like to think. There is one final piece of advice that I'd like us to think about. And I admit that this one is not found in these two chapters. As Christians, we have a great advantage over the original readers of Proverbs. For we know Jesus. And the final piece of advice on the theme of overcoming temptation is for us to actively remember Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, if you want to look it up later, the Bible explains that Jesus was human in every way like us. And that means he experienced temptation just like we do. And we see this in the Gospels, most particularly in Gethsemane, where Jesus was tempted, every fibre of his being was tempted to run away from the cross. And Hebrews tells us that we're to allow Jesus to become our ultimate inspiration because he overcame his temptation. And because he overcame it, he can still help us today. So when we as Christians are feeling tempted, alongside reading God's word and heeding the warnings and refusing to compromise and reflecting on the consequences, we are to remember Jesus. We are to pray earnestly to him, 
knowing that he's there, watching on, wanting our best. We are to pray knowing that that's what Jesus did, praying to his father when he felt tempted. And we are to remember that because of Jesus, the fear of death has been removed. And eternal life has been opened up to us. So we always have something much better to live for than the measly short-term gains that temptation offers to us. I hope that these thoughts will be a help and encouragement to us all. For we all need this advice at times as we engage with our ongoing battle with temptation here on Isla in 2022.